KMTT, Ki Mitzion Tetzay Torah, and we're back in the series on Yud Gimel Midot, twice a week, the second one for this week uh, is, this is Shir number four, and the Midah today, or more correctly, the Midot today will be Rachum V'chanon. This is Ezra Bek. We've seen in the past discussed the first two midot, Hashem Hashem. The previous year we discussed the third midah, which was Kel. And today we will discuss two midot, Rachum Pechanun. Very, very close synonyms, and therefore we are first of all interested in the difference between them, but we're also interested in what they mean relative to the previous midot, which also were Rachamim. And for our text today, we begin with a Tosfot in Rosh Hashanah, Daf Zayin and Bet. Actually, not a Tosfot, but uh, on the printed page of the Gemara, next to the Tosfot, there appears a Haga'at Tosfot. There's a addendum, a note on the side, uh, which is also from the Middle Ages, from a, it's a later version, a later addendum made to the Tosfot. And he addresses our question. This is what he says, first of all, about Rachum. He says, Rachum gam hu midat rachamim, velo ki midat havaya. He doesn't explain anything. Tosu says, Rachum is Midat Rachamim. Obviously. Mercy is an attribute of mercy. But not like the attribute of Havaya Havaya, the first two attributes. Ki Rachamim Chalukim, because there are many different kinds of mercies. This was my original point when I started the series. We have to explain if there are 13 attributes of mercy, the 13 different attributes of mercy. And he proves it because, as we said in the statement about Havaya Havaya, that the two Havayot are different. It's the same word, and they mean different things. So surely Rachum means something else. But he doesn't explain what it means. He just says it's different. Okay, so we're going to continue. We're going to see what he says about Chanun, and I think that will help us understand what it is about Rachum. The Haga'at HaTosfot continues. The Chanun gam hum And Chanun also means something else. Because the attribute of Rachamim is when a man is not in trouble. For before the trouble occurs, God has mercy on him that it should not occur. But Chanun is that God, Chonen, God has this kind of mercy. He has chanina for you. When you're in trouble and it comes to save he who cries out. As is written, chanun yuchoncha lekol za'akecha. That the merciful one will have mercy for you in response to the sounds of your cries. And this attribute is, so to speak, notice that hesitation of Tosvot, Kaviyachon, it is, so to speak, that against his will he has to have Chanina, who Chonen, he who cries, even though it is Shelokedin, even though it is not justified. As is written, Vayaki Yitzake Elai V'shamati Ki Chanun Ani. Pasuk says, talking about people, that when you collect a debt from a poor person who owes you money, he can't pay you, so you take an article of his clothing or some other objects in order to ensure the payment of the debt. So you, if you take his, his, his mattress, if you take certain articles, you have to give them back when he needs them. 
Because otherwise, he'll be without a bed to sleep in. When he will cry to me, I will hear, for I am Chanun. What does that mean? Tosfot continues, in other words, even though it's justified that you should take the surety, the object that you took in payment, it's justified because you lent him money. Nonetheless, you should give it back to him, because if you don't, and he cries out to me, this is the attribute, that I will hear his cry, because I, God, am Chanun, and I am not able, I cannot stand to see his suffering. Okay, so Tosvot has an extended explanation of what Chanina is. And we're going to continue with Chanina, but now I want to work backwards. From what he says about Chanina, we can understand what Rachum is. Chanina is, God will have mercy on him, even though it's unjustified, just like in the case of the loaning money. It's justified that you should take his object. It's unjustified that you should get it back, but God will still have mercy on him because he has cried. From this we learn what is means Vachum. Vachum is in the language of Tosfot, Rachamim Shahu Kedin. Now I know there's a contradiction here. We always say that Rachamim and Din are two different attributes. So Tosfot is saying that there's a kind of Rachamim which is also Din. Meaning that it's, it's justified. What does that mean? It means you shouldn't imagine that Rachamim is logic. Is, I'm sorry, justice. Din is logic. And Rachamim is emotions, it's, it's illogical, it's arbitrary. No, there's a logic to mercy, just like there's a logic to, to justice. There are rules. When someone has mercy, a judge has mercy on, on an accused, it's, it's because of some reasons. For instance, I mean, that, that's the way modern trials take place. You have a trial, and there's din, there's justice. There's the law. And according to the law, he's guilty. Then, when it comes time for sentencing, so they have this whole series of, uh, of meetings of the court where you'll hear from uh, the social worker who'll tell you that the accused had a very difficult childhood and his mother used to beat him. And then you'll hear from his uh, friends and uh, colleagues who'll tell you that in many other areas of his life, he's a very fine person. He helps his mother. He helps all people across the street. And a psychologist, you'll find that he has little children at home, and they're nebuchim. What, what, what is the judge collecting here? These are all reasons for extenuating circumstances, or these extenuating circumstances in terms of the sentence. We're dealing in rachamim. The, the judgment was that he's guilty. We're dealing in rachamim, but there were rules to rachamim. And uh, the rules are very complicated. Maybe they're not really rules. There's... there's there is shikulim, there's considerations. There's a logic to rachamim by which some people deserve it and some people do not deserve it. The word deserve is what Tosot calls din, in this sense, meaning it's justified. There are some who having mercy on them is justified, it's deserved according to the rules of, of mercy, not according to the rules of justice. But mercy has its own rules. And after you finish one, you go to the other. There's a very important point here. We shouldn't imagine that, that mercy doesn't have any rules. has no logic. It's just whatever you want. Not true. There are, and we know it's not true. There's, uh, we, we can criticize someone's mercy. 
and, and, and we can teach somewhat the rules of mercy. I imagine it's extremely complicated. If I had to write a book, it would probably be a longer book, I think, than the Book of Justice. Because there's a million and one, perhaps infinite number of factors which could be relevant to mercy. But there are such, there are such factors. And this already is the difference between the first three midot, Havaya, Havaya, Kel, and this midah. What I emphasized in the shir on Havaya, Havaya, is that the elementary attribute of mercy of God, expressed by the name Yudke Vavke, is undifferentiated. It refers to existence. The fact that God makes the world and anything and everything in it is the attribute of mercy. Because none of those things deserved to exist when compared to their non-existence. Nothing in the state of non-existence said, you should exist. The ant should exist. The giant should exist. The man should exist. The paramecium should exist. Therefore, all of them received unmitigated, undifferentiated mercy. And therefore they exist. That was true for Havaya. It was true for second Havaya, when you sinned. And it was true for Kel, when God had to even maintain the sin. Because he wants, what's the logic? He wants things to exist. Things. So those three midot of mercy are undifferentiated. They don't have any rules. The only rule is that God wishes existence to exist. Rachum is different than the previous three midot because Rachum is differentiated. It's logical mercy. And there there's a different amount of mercy given to Mr. A and Mr. B. The mercy of Havaya, Havaya Kel is equal in its amount. You know, quantitatively, the same amount of mercy is being expressed on my existence as on the existence of the ant. Namely, we both exist. But the amount of mercy that will be expended on this some callous killer and some uh, unfortunate uh, youth who, whatever, he got caught up in emotions, will be different. Because one deserves mercy, or more mercy, and one deserves, and one deserves less. So that's what rachum means. Rachum means mercy which is justified by the rules of mercy. I'm not going to discuss what the rules of mercy are. It's too long, it's too complicated. I think we all understand they exist. I think we also, well, we actually dis- disagree very often, but we agree on the principles and disagree endlessly on the applications. So God also has rules of mercy. And the midah, the first midah for today, after Havaya Havaya is that God is Rachum. He's not only Din, He's not only a stern justice dispenser, but He's also one who judges by the attribute of mercy, and therefore He looks into those extenuating circumstances I mentioned before. You can say to God, it's true, I did it, but have mercy because... I was tired. Have mercy because I was drunk. Have mercy because of my mother. Uh, whatever. There's, there are things you can raise in your extenuating circumstances. When you say the word Rachum, I, I promise that every time, I, I hope I promised, well, I meant to promise, that every time we learn a Midah, I will try to explain what the, the understanding of the person who's saying it goes behind it. When you say the word Rachum, I don't think you should think of those particular extenuating circumstances. You're just saying, Shemot Hashem. But you should be aware that's what you're saying. You're saying, you are Rachum, therefore I on me, because you can find extenuating circumstances. Look at me and, and, and judge me favorably, judge me with mercy, because of all those things which are applicable. You have to advance, 
potentially. You have to think that you're willing to advance those uh, arguments, arguments, logical arguments, for, for mercy. This is as opposed to Hanina. The next Midah, Hanun, Tosu says, is when all those arguments are finished. And that's why Tosu says that the Nafkamin, the difference, practically speaking, is that mercy is before punishment and Hanina is after punishment. In other words, before the punishment is actually applied, you have the stage of judgment, you have the stage of arguments for punishment, the judge has heard the witnesses, he's heard the lawyers, then he heard the social workers, then he looked at you in the eyes, and then, Bechosot, nonetheless, he said, 10 years in jail. If the Rachamim had helped you, he would never have said that. He would have said, oh, you're a Nebuch, suspended sentence. But apparently, the Rachamim didn't work for you. No, it's not enough extenuating circumstances. So he said, 10 years in jail. When you go to jail, you begin to scream. And then it also says, even though it's bedin, the fact that you scream doesn't change the circumstances. You don't deserve to get out. So the Chanun applies when all the logic of din and all the logic of Rachamim was insufficient to keep you from being punished. Only then does Midah of Chanun, Chanun begin. Of course, we have to explain, so how does Chanun work? Why if somebody cries and screams, does that change? Since it doesn't change the Rachamim, it doesn't change the extenuating circumstances, so why does it change anything at all? Before we get to that, I just want to point out that Tosfot, there's another line to Tosfot. He gives another explanation of the word Chanun. It's not another explanation, it's another basis for understanding the word. Gam yesh belashon Chanun matnat chinam. Tosfot claims that the root of the word Chanun is equivalent is shared with the root of the word chinam, free, unrequited, un, uh, undeserved. He quotes the Gemara in Brachot, which says this on a different pasuk of Chaninah, the Gemara says, Apo hagun. So it's a different um, semantic explanation, but it's the same point. Lachon means to give a matnat chinam, to give a free present. At the same point, Levachem isn't free. God owes, uh, owes is too strong a word, there's a certain logic to Rachon, but when you get Chanina, it's just purely free, it's just a pure present, because there is nothing which demands, requires, even justifies it in any, in any sense, at least relative to the previous Midot, where there was some, where there was some logic. Okay, so now we have, let me go over the first four midot. Havaya. God makes everything according to His will because He wishes the things should exist. Havaya. Among those things that exist is sin. And God still wants the world to exist. Kel. God wants even the sin to exist, which requires power. Because He wishes things to exist. He wishes them to exist as they are with Bechirach of Shit. Rachum. God judges man individually, although he sinned even more than Midat Havayashnia and Midat Kel could support, but he still has mercy on some, a portion of created things for various reasons which are justified by the logic of mercy. 
And it turns out that that wasn't enough. And here we have a person who is totally undeserved of anything, and therefore God decides to punish him. And when he begins to punish him, the man cries out. And then without any justification of Rachamim, we get to Midat Chanun, and God suspends his sentence. Our question is, what is it that justifies, what is it that explains, not justifies, I take it back, what is it that explains why it is that we think that it's right that if you've made a correct decision that someone should suffer, it's the correct decision by all standards, but he begins to cry, you have to give in. If I have a child, other circumstances as well, but let's take this one, a situation, I decide my child should be punished. I'm right. I know I'm right. But if I, but I can't be present when it takes place. Because then, I will see his suffering, I will hear his cry, and I will have to stop it. Is that a weakness? Well, we've already said that Midot HaRachamim are not weaknesses. That was what we learned in the previous shiur. That Kel, the Midot HaRachamim are power and not weakness. So I'm going to try to explain this, and I, I'm a little bit cautious here, but I think it's the right explanation. Let's start from us. Why is it that I have mercy on a crying child, even though I think it's right that he should be punished? Suppose my computer acted up, as it does, and I'm angry at my computer that I decide to punish it. So how do I punish it? I, uh, I don't know, I push a button, I pull the plug, my computer is very special. When I pull the plug, it begins to squeak and to cry and make terrible, terrible noise before it finally turns off. You hear the hard disk just scratching away. Terrible, really sad noises. Doesn't bother me. It's not going to change my mind. It's the screams of my computer will not move me. Why do the screams of my child move me? The answer, I think, is clear. When a person cries... It affects my heart because his crying, his voice, arouses in me my basic identification with him. I see myself in his place. When he cries, in other words, I feel the pain. It hurts me. That's what crying does. Chazal say that when a person cries, everyone else cries with him. When someone cries at night, the others cry as well. When one baby cries, the other babies cry as well. Crying elicits, the word in English is sympathy, in its original Greek meaning. Sympathy means common feeling, common pathos. When someone suffers and I can see his suffering, I suffer with him. That's the reason why my hand is checked. If I'm external to you, I'm the judge, and I decree that you should suffer, I'm right. It's proper. It's good. Even Rachamim says you should suffer. What's the problem? I can say it. But when you begin to suffer and you cry out, if the judge remains a judge sitting up high, not a human being, if the judge were a computer, a wise and compassionate computer, it would make a bit of a difference. But if the judge is a human being, very similar to the man he's just condemned, then that cry touches him in his heart. Why does it touch him in his heart? 
because the cry is his own cry. When judges were from a different, or when judges are from a totally different social stratum than the people they're judging, they don't feel this sympathy. They're not cruel. They could still be wise and, and, and merciful people. But the crying of the second class person, the lower class person who they're judging, will not touch their hearts because they're like different species. And that's what happens in a class society. But if you're judged by a jury of your peers, and if the judge basically is committed to the same degree of humanity as you have, then your cry elicits identification. He says, when you cry, there but for the grace of God go I. And that, you can say that this is a form of, uh, of it's like patexia. It, it doesn't see, it isn't justified. But because, if it was your pain, I would be okay with it. But if your pain is my pain, I cannot keep it up. We have a certain commitment to decreasing people's pain even when it's justified. Not decreasing the punishment, but decreasing their pain because their pain is our pain. We feel their pain. We don't just know about their pain, but we actually feel it. These feelings of, of affinity, of identification, include all humanity, or at least it should include all humanity, since we are all participants in a common humanity. As the Gemara says, Why was man created only one? So that we should all have a common father. Okay, now I don't want to Oh, that, that, that's what sympathy means among human beings. I want to apply this to God. How can I say that? What do I mean? Can we say that there's something similar? Identification, affinity between God and man. So I think, I do believe that the answer is yes. God identifies with his creation for two reasons. One is because he created them. He, he invested they don't just exist independent in any respect of him, but, but he has invested himself. When you make something, why do we have a special affinity for our children more than for others? Because we've, we've made them. We've invested in them. They're the, they're, they're, they are, we are found in them because our labor is in them. Okay, So God has made the world. So the world has a certain measure of, of God invested in it. And therefore God sees himself there. That's reason number one. I think a second reason, which I think is more important, more correct, and definitely more relevant to what we have to say today. When it comes to humans, not anything created, but to humans, then there's an affinity between God and man because man is made B'Tselem Elohim. Man is made in the image of God. And I'm not going to describe today what that means completely. It's a very complicated topic. There's a lot of opinions. But the words mean, the words mean, Man is created in the image of God. When God sees man, he sees God. The basic explanation, there's much more complicated, the basic explanation of the word Salam Elohim means that man can become God. Man aspires to become God. The word Salam, image, is like the technical description. You have plans, you have architectural plans, and you have a house. The house is built to look like the architectural plans. When God makes things, he first wrote up a description. He had a tselem kelev. He had the image of a dog and then he made a dog. When he made a man, he had the image of God. 
It means the the most perfect man would be God. No man will be God. You won't you won't become infinite. But it means there's no limit other than God to what you will be. A dog will never be more than a dog. A man will always be more than a man. He will always surpass and transcend himself, or he should be surpassing and transcending himself, because his image of what he could or should be is nothing less than God, is God. And therefore I am suggesting that when God sees man, it's possible to arouse the affinity, the identification of God with man, because God can see in man a reflection of himself. If before I said the basic sentence which describes human sympathy and affinity is there but for the grace of God go I. So when God sees man, he says, there, by the chesed, by the grace of God, goes he who could be me. Who could aspire to reach up to the heavens Ad Kisei HaKavod, as the Gemara says, Gdolat Shuvah, Shuvah is so great that it reaches to Kisei HaKavod. Shuvah Yisrael, Ad Hashem Elokecha. Israel return not to God, but up to God. Repentance reaches to the throne of God. Just as I have a certain affinity, identification with the crying baby, or the suffering man, and I see myself in his place, and I feel his pain, so too does God. When you cry. That's the, that's the purpose of crying. That's the result of crying. When a person expresses his pain, he doesn't describe it. He doesn't describe that I'm going to be punished. God knew that. And he's perfectly okay with that. But when you take your internal feelings, your suffering, and you put it out there, you put it where our ears can hear it, where our eyes can see it, where our hearts can feel it, then we feel it. The same thing happens with God. Why? Because there is a partnership, there is a, a, a coexistence between God and man, which is expressed by the word Tzermalokim. We have a very good example of this in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. Pao is making the Jews suffer. He's enslaved the Jews. God knows that. I assume that God even planned it. He told Abba Mavino in advance that it would take place. And God is responsible for everything which takes place. So it, it's justified. I don't know why. It's justified. The Jews are meant to be enslaved. No problem. But then it says, Vata'al, it says, Vayitzaku b'nei Yisrael el ha'alokim min avodah. But then when they really suffered, they cried out, Vayitzaku. And their cry arose, moved, literally, reached God. It's a strange puzzle. If you cry, God hears. No, but here the cry was loud enough, so to speak, that it actually arose and came, touched, touched the skies, touched the heavens. God heard, God saw, and God knew. What did he know? doesn't say. 
He knew that they were suffering. He knew that they were being punished. He knew that they were working hard. He knew that before. He knows everything. What does it mean by Yei the Elohim without any direct object? I suggest that's what it means. It means he felt it. He was one with it. The famous Pasuk by Adam v'Chava and Adam and Eve. After Eve was created. And they were united. Vayeda Adam et Hava And man knew, meaning he was one with. First, a sexual union. He was one with Chava. Yidi'ah means being one. God knows, in the regular sense, the Jews are working hard. When they cry, when he saw, when he heard, when he heard and he saw, he, in our terms, human terms, he felt it. He was one with it. And then, he calls Moshe Rabbeinu and says, we got to get out. It's time to take them out. According to the Medrash, it was early, it was before the original scheduled time, 190 years early. It's time to get out. If they're crying, Midata Khanina Vayaki Itzakilai, Vishamati ki Khanun Ani. Kavyachol Eino Yachol Odbonyo. He cannot He cannot suffer their suffering. He cannot bear that they are that they are suffering. I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit apprehensive about what I just said. I, I'm saying that God suffers when we suffer. Chazal say it, I am with them in their suffering. The idea is found in Chazal. But if the idea is really shocking, then I take refuge in what we've done in the past. What our, the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says about the Gemara Midot. And I'll say it once again. Not an explicit verse, I would never say it. Okay, so I, I don't have the chutzpah to say this, but I think it's what the verse says. So that's my cover. That is my cover. But I want to explain more. What did the Gemara say about that? Ilmale mikra katavi yafshalam avodan. Explicit verse would be possible to say. Teaches us that. Nitatev hakadosh baruchu kishliach tzibur v'amar. God put on the talit and showed Moshe Rabbeinu how to do that. So I gave one explanation why he had to show Moshe Rabbeinu. Now I want to give another explanation. When we say yud gimel midot, we aren't saying them. We are here. God is opposite us listening. When we say Yudgim Omidot, God is the Shliach Tzibur. What did I just explain about Chanun? Chanun means that it works because God is not opposite us. The judge on the dais looking down on the box of the accused defendant. What The second you cry, God is with you. He's one with you. So he switches positions. He's not opposite us. We are praying to him. But we're all, so to speak, praying together. The whole Midat Chanun is based on the fact that God is Bitochenu. He's the Shliach Tzibur. He's the Chazan for these words. Not the recipient. He's not listening to the Yom Midat. But he's one with them. Specifically with Chanun. The whole thing is based on the fact that God is one with us in this Midat. Final point. Once again, I return to the question, if this is true, then what do you think? What do you have? Kavana? What, what, what is in the back of your mind when you say Chanun? Well, you can't say this if you're not willing to believe it. When you say Chanun, you have to be a Tzo'ek. You have to really feel your own pain. If you ask God for mercy, that's Vachum. 
I ask God for mercy because I'm a nevach. If you cry, if you just cry, that's chanun. When you say chanun, you have to feel the pain and you have to express the pain because you have to cry out the pain because the crying is what affects through God's, so to speak, ears, affects God's, so to speak, heart. So the, 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 uh, the, how should I put it? The accompanying understanding of Rachum is have mercy because find the reasons why I deserve this mercy. The accompanying understanding of Chanun is have Chanina because I'm in tremendous pain and I, I'm putting my pain on the table. Maybe I, I said it too logically now. It's not do this because of that. When you say Chanun, you just have to cry. In order to cry, you can't fake it. You have to really feel the pain of what it means to be the, the terrible person you are. What it means to feel the pain of God's impending or already punishment which has affected you. When a baby cries, he's not saying, I will cry in order that, hopefully, not I will cry in order that the person hearing it will think like this and this. He just cries because it hurts. That's how you have to cry. You have to cry like a little baby and God is your father and when the pain hits you, you run. And you simply cry. Simple instinct. Because you know that if the Father hears your crying, He will share your crying. And if He does that, Vahaya ki yitzak elai, v'shamati ki chanun ani. Thank you. And that is today's, the end of today's shiur. You give a midot, midat chanun.